So today we're continuing through Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3 verses 4 to 15 and we're going to see how God prepares and equips Ezekiel. So as usual we'll start the memory verse. So Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 to 27. Are you ready? Big voices. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these promises. And Lord, today we're going to find out that sometimes we're not expecting where you're going to lead us. But where you do lead us, you prepare us and strengthen us and equip us for whatever you call us to. And that's your promise. So help us to take confidence in that and to trust that promise, Lord, that when you guide us into a new phase of our life, Lord, you will give us everything we need to accomplish and be successful in what we're doing for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, for me, I didn't know I was going to be a pastor. I had no desire to be a pastor when I was younger. And then one day I got the phone call and said, would you like to be a pastor? And that's what I think it was like for Ezekiel. He was in training to be a priest. And then he's in Babylon for a couple of years in captivity. And then, whammo, suddenly God appears to him in this amazing vision. and he says, you're going to be a prophet. And Ezekiel goes, what? <laughs> you know? And we're going to find out today that Ezekiel wasn't looking for this. In fact, he didn't even want to do this. But God put the desire in his heart, the strength in his heart, preparing him emotionally and spiritually for this journey that God had put him on, this role that God had given him. So we're going to see where God tells Ezekiel what kind of opposition he's going to face. And then we're going to see how God will give Ezekiel the strength and endurance to outlast his critics. And again, the same applies for us today. It was true for us today. So let's read Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 4 to 15. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you, because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. This is God equipping Ezekiel. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Literally, house of rebellion. Verse 10. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you, and hear with your ears, and go, get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them, and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. Verse 12, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from his place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another, 
and the noise of the wheels beside them, and a great thunderous noise. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to the captives at Tel Abib, who dwelt by the river Kibar, and I sat where they sat, and remained there astonished among them seven days. Let's look at verses 4 to 7 first, and I've titled this, Why Don't People Listen to Us? Well, because I won't listen to God. So Ezekiel 3, 4 to 7, Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you, because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. So verse 4 it says, Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. So this is God repeating the call to ministry. Again, the Great Commission, go into all the world. Here, it's go to the house of Israel. And speak with my words. So, only speak what God tells us to speak and not what we want to, what we think is good, not what's going to benefit us. Verse 5, For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. So, here Ezekiel's calling is to his own people. Now, this makes it really difficult. Do you know how hard it is to try and evangelize your own family? If they're unsaved? It's very difficult to try and evangelize your own family. Everybody knows you and no one listens to you. And it's like Jesus himself experienced this. He was rejected by his own family, his own people in Nazareth. Mark chapter 6 verse 3. And it's kind of like this old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And verse 6. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, whose words you cannot understand, Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. So you remember the prophet Jonah? He was sent to the Ninevites. And all he did was say, 40 days and God will destroy this city, or something like that. And they repented from the king right down to the animals. (laughs) And the animals even put sackcloth on. But the people of Israel, (laughs) the people of Israel, they didn't listen. And it's going to be the same in the days of Ezekiel. God is saying, if I'd sent you to those foreign nations, they'd listen. But my people won't. Now, there's an application here for the church. God is sending us, not just to witness to the lost, but to other believers as well, people in the church. Because sometimes the people in the church are less hungry and less receptive for God's word than the lost people are. And someone has said that there's a famine for the word of God in many churches today. Many churched people have little or no appetite for the word of God. I bet if you ask a lot of Christians, they haven't even read the Bible all the way through. So in today's Laodicean church age, and you can reference Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, It's the church where we think we have all we need, we have no lack, and we are rich and 
We neglect to feed on God's word. Why? Well, our appetite is for the things of the world instead. Fleshly things. Pleasure. Having a good time. However, the things of the world don't satisfy. And unfortunately, that will come too late for some people. Amos 8, 11 to 12. God gives us a warning here. He says, and this is for the children of Israel. This did actually happen to them, but it can happen to us too. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. So we can be well off. We can have plenty of bread, plenty of water. But what we need the most is the word of God. What does the Bible say? Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 7. But the house of Israel will not listen to you, because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. And he's repeating what he said in chapter 2, verse 4. God's own people, and we can apply this to ourselves sometimes, and also the church at large, God's own people are willingly stubborn, deliberately setting their face to oppose God, refusing to change or repent, and not even feeling guilty about doing the wrong thing. That's a layer to see in church. And this is the danger that you read about in Hebrews 3.13, where these people, the Israelites, and us too, if we allow it, can experience the worst possible consequence of sin. And that is, our hearts can become hardened toward God. So we need to make sure that we don't allow our hearts to become as hard toward God as the Israelites did. Because why? The harder your heart, the more pride you have. What's that saying? The higher you are, the further you got the fall, yeah? <laughs> the harder the heart, the greater the discipline, yeah? The greater our pride, then the greater our fall. God's discipline will have to be more severe, you see. So, you know, if the kid listens to you, you know, you, I think most of you have been around kids. If the kid listens to you the first time, it's just a, you know, hey, thanks for listening, you know, and they can miss out on the smack. But if they don't listen, then the consequence gets more severe. If they still don't listen, then the consequences just get more and more severe until they say, you know what? I think I'll start listening now. <laughs> this consequence is starting to get pretty painful. This is starting to get through. So, yeah. Now, verses 8 and 9. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. So, verse 9, it says, Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Now, it's not literal. You know, he still has skin on the front of his head, okay? But he's talking about his commitment to God. There's a time when we should be stubborn. We should be stubbornly obeying Christ. <laughs> we should be stubborn in our desire to spend time with him. You know, this firm 
commitment, this strong commitment. So the nation of Israel, again, literally the house of rebellion, were deeply committed to the path of resisting and rebelling against God. And so what God did was make Ezekiel even more committed to serving him by speaking his message. <laughs> and David Guzik says, If they were hard in their rebellion, God would make him harder than flint in his courage and integrity. End of quote. So no matter how stubborn unbelievers are in their sin, we must be even more stubborn or more hard okay, and unyielding in our obedience to Christ. And notice it says there, I have made your. Okay? So this is something that God does in us, and we'll come back to that. And verse 8, I have made your face strong. So God is preparing and equipping Ezekiel emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually to deal with the anticipated rejection of God's message. And Spurgeon says, make your face like adamant if their hearts are like adamant. If they are not ashamed to sin, do not you be ashamed to warn them. And if they are not ashamed of their unbelief, be not you ashamed of your faith in the divine testimony. So basically, don't back down. If they don't want to believe, that's fine. But don't you back down and don't you start going along with them. That's what God is saying to Ezekiel. So what we see in the book of Ezekiel is that Ezekiel actually did outlast his opponents. When we get to the end, we'll see that Ezekiel did outlast his opponents. His message came through and he was able to keep on preaching this message, this difficult message, right until the end. And God vindicated him. So basically, God gave Ezekiel the strength of character to continue to butt heads with those who refuse to believe, to continue to preach to those who refuse to respond right to the very end of his life. Now for us, we need to ask God for the same kind of strength so that we can have the same level of commitment where we will never give up no matter how many setbacks we face, no matter how many times we are rejected, and no matter how difficult life gets. And going on to verses 10 to 15, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you, and hear with your ears, and go, get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from his place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another, and the noise of the wheels beside them, and a great thunderous noise. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit. Interesting. So I went in bitterness, in the heat of, or anger of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to the captives at Tel Abib, who dwelt by the river Kibar, and I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them seven days. So just quickly through verses 10 and 11. Son of man, receive into your heart all my words I speak to you and hear with your ears and go. And we went through this last week. God says this three times in this passage. We haven't read all of it, but last week we did this. The message must become a part of us before we can be sent. We must have soft hearts to hear and receive the word of God before we can effectively speak it. 
Now, verses 11 and 15, it says, Go, get to the captives, to the children of your people. Then I came to the captives at Tel Abib, who dwelt by the river Kibar, and I sat where they sat, and remained there astonished among them seven days. Now, the quote from Wearsby, he says, It's a good thing for the servant of God to be among his people, to weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice, for he can better minister to them when he knows their hearts and feels their pain. Another quote, This was a time of reflection and observation, such as many great men of God experienced prior to launching their ministries. Those days of silence changed his attitude about his mission. He learned patience. He came to accept responsibility. So God tells him to go there. And all he did was sit and listen and watch. He's just observing. And he was there astonished among them for seven days. So he's allowing the message to become a part of him. He's kind of meditating what God has told him, thinking about it. And in verses 12 and 13, it says, Blessed is the glory of the Lord from his place. So at the end of this vision, we hear God or the angels saying this, Blessed is the glory of the Lord from his place. And so it reminds us of the vision, the awesome chariot with the glory of the Lord high above it. And it brings us back to the right perspective. We need to remember that we serve a big God. God is glorious, powerful, and majestic beyond measure. Man is tiny, puny, weak, dumb, and insignificant in comparison. So remember that. We, at any time, have access to the throne room of God where we can experience God's glory and find all the grace and help we need for any situation. So. God is revealing to Ezekiel that, hey, yeah, I'm in control. Ezekiel, he's angry, he's bitter, but then God just reminds him, hey, I'm in control. I'm a big God. And he also gives Ezekiel, as we'll see in the next bit, the impetus, the desire to do what God wants him to do. Verse 14, So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat or anger of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. <laughs> so this is Ezekiel's initial response. He's angry and he's bitter. You might think that's weird, considering that he's just seen this vision of God. But he's angry and bitter. As my parents used to say to me when things weren't easy when I was a kid, well, life wasn't meant to be easy. <laughs> so, that's what I imagine God saying to Ezekiel right now. Well, life wasn't meant to be easy. Harden up, have a go for concrete. A quote from David Guzik. Perhaps Ezekiel was bitter at his lot as a captive, while others still lived and served in Jerusalem at the temple. Perhaps he was bitter at the difficulty of his call. Perhaps he was bitter at the sin and rebellion of the people of Israel. Whatever the exact cause, Ezekiel was bitter, angry and stunned. Or astonished in verse 15. So basically, that's his initial reaction. But he spent time with the people. He sat. He listened. And he allowed that message to become a part of him. And so God's heart became his heart. And then he was able to share this message in the right attitude, in the right way. Verse 14, So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. 
but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. So this is where the source of our strength comes from. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. And so the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. See how it's all God doing this? God is the source of our strength to overcome our feelings, our objections, and our fears. So we might not feel like doing something. We might be angry. We might be hurt. Whatever that we might be experiencing, whatever emotion we might be experiencing, God can overcome that. He is the source of our strength to overcome our feelings, objections, and fears. And Philippians 2.13, it says that God will work in us the desire both to will and to do his good pleasure. So the principle here is that where God guides, he provides. And in this example, God is providing Ezekiel with the emotional fortitude, the emotional strength, and the desire to go ahead with this very difficult and in a human way of thinking, it's an unrewarding calling because no one's going to respond. Well, very few people. You know, he's there. All he's doing is saying God's words and people are going to hurt him. People are going to mock him. People are going to, you know, speak against him. It's going to be a very unrewarding calling. I mean, if you're doing it for money, he's not going to get paid for this. He's not going to get rewarded by the nation for his work as a prophet. All he's going to get is persecution. So the Israelites might be very committed to their disobedience, but here God made Ezekiel even more committed to loving and obeying him. Ezekiel would stubbornly continue to follow the Lord even when all those around him stubbornly refused to do so. Why? How could he do this? Where did the strength come from? It was from God. The hand of the Lord was strong upon him. Yeah. So this is an awesome example of how God can supernaturally and does supernaturally put the desire for something in us and then gives us the strength and resources we need to accomplish his commands. So Philippians 2.13, I've got it in two versions here, the first in New King James. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And Philippians 2.13, the New Living Translation, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the pleasure to do what pleases him. So I think of Ezekiel, I imagine him as being quite a, a sensitive fellow, and he's going to get all this rejection. So in his own strength, he wouldn't cope in this ministry. But God is going to supernaturally strengthen his character so he can cope with all the rejection. He can cope with all the persecution. So the application for us, when God calls us to something, we should feel inadequate. It's good to feel inadequate. And I believe the earlier we understand that God's commands can only be obeyed by first submitting to God and then seeking His power and wisdom, then the less we will fall on our face as we try to do things by our own strength. (laughs) If we think we can do something on our own strength, then God will let us try. He'll say, go ahead, have a go, do it yourself. We'll try, we'll fail, and then we'll finally repent of our independence and we'll start doing things in God's strength instead. And this is applicable to all parts of our life. It's not just ministry. It's trying to overcome sin on our own strength. God will let us try, fail, and then repent of our, not just sin, but of our independence of trying to do things on our own strength, you see. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, there's a couple of big pictures. 
a couple of things that we need to know what's going on, which are not just in a couple of verses, but they're themes. So what we're going to do is step back, and we're going to see what God is doing to and through the nation of Israel. And then we can apply that to us as well. So as we go through, there's a whole lot of detail, it's a whole lot of prophecies, there's a whole lot of sermons that God gives to the people. But this is the big picture. This is how you put it all into perspective. So the first big picture in the book of Ezekiel is God's discipline. So basically in chapters 2 through 35, you'll find God through Ezekiel rebuking and disciplining his people because of their failure to respond to his goodness and kindness. But then, in chapters 36 through 48, after condemning them and telling them what they're doing wrong all the time, God gives the people words of consolation, comfort and encouragement. And he gives them lots of promises concerning their future, even though they're in sin. So what is true for the nation of Israel is also true for us. No matter how bad our circumstances may be, no matter how bad it may be sin, with God there is always hope. And so this is one of the big pictures I want us to get. No matter how bad our circumstances may be, no matter how badly we may sin with God, there is always hope. So as we go through these chapters in Ezekiel, it's going to seem hopeless. For the people, it would have seemed hopeless. And that's why God finishes with hope. So we need to keep the big picture in mind as we read through these chapters of rebuke and judgment towards Israel as we go through. And for us, we too can feel like God is hammering us day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, smashing us, disciplining us, smashing our pride. That's what he's doing. He's not smashing us. He's smashing our pride as he mercifully humbles us. (laughs) He's assisting us in this journey of dying to self, this process of dying to self. It's never easy. It's never nice. It's not something we look forward to doing, but it's always for our good now and for our future glory. Now, what would happen if God didn't discipline the children of Israel, if he just let them keep going? They would eventually become so distant from God, they'd just be like the other nations. They wanted to worship idols and they were going in that direction. And if God didn't do anything about it, they would have just kept going. So for us, without God's loving discipline in our lives, we would be carried away with our sin and our relationship with God would, again, like the children of Israel, grow more and more distant and strained because of our hearts growing more and more prideful and hard-hearted towards God. Then an application here and and an illustration at the same time. (laughs) Imagine you're a parent and you never disciplined your kids. You let your kids do whatever they want and have whatever they want. What would the kids end up like? Spoiled brats. What would your relationship with them be like? They would end up hating you. Do you realize that? They would end up hating you because they would be so distant from you, getting their own way. They wouldn't be thinking about you at all. But if the parents exercise godly discipline, it causes a relationship to heal 
and grow in love and trust. So basically what God is doing, like he did with the children of Israel, he's encouraging us to do the things that will cause our relationship with him to grow and discouraging us in our doing things that hurt our relationship with God. So this is a thing you do with training animals and horses and whatever. You make it easy to do the good thing and harder to do the bad thing. And so basically, like a good parent, as God is a good parent, he makes life hard for us when we are selfish and sinful, but he rewards us when we are humble and kind. The hardness is the consequence of our sins. He doesn't have to do much. We just experience the practical consequences of our sin. Most of the time that's enough. The girl makes a mistake and gets pregnant. Now she's got a baby. God doesn't have to do any kind of discipline. The rest of her life she's raising a child and might be a single mum the rest of her life, you know. But when we do the right thing, what's the reward? How are we encouraged to do the right thing? It's a relationship. We grow closer in our relationship, you see. And we experience a deeper and more satisfying and a more pleasurable love. As you grow closer to someone and you learn to love them more, you grow to love them more, it brings pleasure. And that's what we experience with God. Now, in Hebrews 12, 5 to 11, it talks about God chastening us. And it says this, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens or disciplines, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening. Ah, so what do we do with chastening? We have to endure it. (laughs) All right. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, so if you're being chastened by God, good. <laughs> because if you're a child of God, you will have experienced God's chastening because we all have a sinful nature, you see. God is dealing with us. It's part of the process of growing up as you get disciplined by your parents. So it says that of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So if you have not been chastened by God, then you're not his son. Because if you are his son, you will be chastened. He'll be dealing with you. He'll be changing you to be more like him. Verse 9, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us or disciplined us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. So our fathers, our mothers, they chastened us as what seemed best to them. They did their best. Okay, so all due respect to our parents, they did their best. They're not perfect, but they did their best. But God does it perfectly and is always for our profit. So when God disciplines us, it's always for our good. And why? So that we can be partakers of his holiness. We can become more like him and experience a deeper relationship with him. And the last verse there is, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness 
to those who have been trained by it. So if we endure God's chastening, we will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness if we allow ourselves to be trained by God's discipline. Otherwise, we can be like the children of Israel and just keep fighting. And we'll get to the end of our life. Our life will just be worthless. The children of Israel, they were practically worthless at the time when Ezekiel was ministering to them. They turned so far from God, their hearts were so cold, they weren't experiencing much joy at all. And it took a massive chastening by God to take them out of the land, to be under a foreign power, and 70 years in that land, that's a pretty hard chastening, pretty hard discipline. But after the end, after all those 70 years, they came back with changed hearts. They were trained. They allowed themselves to be trained in Babylon. If you don't allow yourself to be trained at home, you can be trained out there. And they yielded the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So that's one encouragement to us as we see what's happening with the children of Israel. There is a purpose for God's discipline of this nation, and that is to bring them back to him. Now, the second big picture I want to look at is God's grace and unconditional promises. Because sometimes we can feel that we've gone too far. We've done too much bad and God has given up on us. But God doesn't do that. I'm going to explain why and use the nation of Israel as an example to encourage us to be strong and to keep walking with him. So, despite the nation of Israel's persistent sin and deep rebellion, and literally to this very day, they have not repented as a nation, right? They are hard-hearted, they are evil, their government is evil, progressive, left, all that kind of thing, homosexual, Arab, you know, not godly at all. The nation of Israel still has a glorious future awaiting them in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and beyond. Why? Because God promised he would. It's all because of God's grace. God always keeps his promises. So again, you think about the nation of Israel. They have not repented spiritually. They have not come back to God. They're not worshipping him as their Messiah. They are still rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. And yet, what has God done? He's brought them back into the land. He's made them a prosperous nation. He's given them the smarts to be you know, good in science and, and many other different fields. He's given them a great military. He's you know, blessed them with an abundance of the vegetables and fruits and forests and a beautiful country. Is that because they did the right thing? Or is that because God is just keeping his promise? He's just keeping his promise, yeah. So we're going to go through and see just one of those promises and follow it through. And the promise I'm going to look at is God's promise to Abraham about the land of Israel. So Genesis 12, 1-3, 13-15, 15-18. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house. To a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Notice the I wills here. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, it's off topic, but 
that last sentence, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, is a reference to the Messiah coming and being the payment for the sins of all mankind. All people are blessed by that payment. We all have the opportunity to come to know Jesus. Now, 13 verse 5, Genesis. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants. For how long? Forever. It's unconditional promise. 15.18, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, if you know your geography, that's a lot of land. It's not just a tiny nation of Israel today. It's right over to Iraq, to the river Euphrates, and right down to Egypt. Psalm 105.9-12, the covenant which God made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Did you like that? Saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance when they were few in number in it. Indeed, very few and strangers in it. So just in the Psalms, reflecting on how God gave Abraham the promise and emphasizing the fact that it was an everlasting covenant. Not a temporary promise, an everlasting covenant. And God did bless Israel. He brought them into the land. He defeated the enemy nations. But what did Israel do? Once God brought them into the land and blessed them, what did they do? They disobeyed. Yep. They started worshipping the idols of the people that were defeated. And they went through a whole cycle of judgments. And then finally we came up to the book of Ezekiel where they're being disciplined by God taking them out of their land. So does this mean that God has broken his promise? God gave them the land, now he's taking them out of the land. Is that a break of promise? Yeah, it's still their land, isn't it? Yeah. So he hasn't broken his promise. It's just a discipline because he says he's going to bring them back. And the good thing about living in these days, the last days before Jesus comes back, the end times, as some people call it, is we get to see more fulfilled prophecies. And we're living in days where there's many prophecies being fulfilled as we are watching the news if the news reports accurately. So, for example, Isaiah 11, verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. Interesting. We'll explain what that means in a sec. To recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. And he will set a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's happening in our lifetime. This is the second bringing back of the people to their land. So let's go back to the first bringing back. So just to show you that, that God said in Isaiah's day, this is like 500 years before the cross, that it's going to happen twice. This hadn't even happened the first time yet. But God is saying it's going to happen twice. So they're going to be kicked out of the land twice. Once in the time of Ezekiel and the next time we'll talk about soon. So how long were the people in the land of Babylon? 70 years. Yeah. Jeremiah 29 verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place, or the land of Israel. So this was the first return 
of the exiles from Babylon. You have Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel and those people helping the nation to rebuild and, and grow. And then the nation of Israel rebelled against God again. It was a slow process. And it culminated in their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah like 400 years later. Jesus predicted that they would soon be defeated and scattered again, and this time by the Romans who would destroy the temple and the city. So they went back into the land, and they were good for a while, but then they started to grow hard again, you see. And you know the Pharisees and the religious leaders, it was all about the traditions of men. And that's what Jesus kept saying to them. You worship me, but you're not worshipping me, you're actually just doing the traditions of men. Your heart's not for me at all. And so that's why Jesus says this. In Luke chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, and then verses 20 and 24, Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and just a note here, in different Gospels, it talks about Jerusalem being attacked. You have to understand that some of those are future. They haven't happened yet. It's the Antichrist, the Battle of Armageddon, that time. But this time frame, this time that Jerusalem is surrounded, is past tense. And you'll see it as we go through. It happened AD 70. This is when Rome sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple and the city in AD 70. So verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its destruction is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, discipline, divine discipline, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, the people of Israel, God's discipline. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So not just Babylon this time, they were scattered all over the world. And we see that that's exactly what happened in AD 70. So what Jesus said actually happened. Many, probably millions of Jews died in that siege and the battles that happened around AD 70 and before. And it is true, Jerusalem is still being trampled by the Gentiles. It is not under full Jewish control. The Temple Mount is still not under Jewish control. So again, this scripture that we just read in Luke was fulfilled in AD 70. The Romans did destroy the city and the Temple. And, as Jesus predicted, for nearly 2,000 years, Israel was scattered, homeless. No homeland. But, in 1948, what did God do? God fulfilled Isaiah 11 and verse 11, bringing back his people the second time. And also, he fulfilled Isaiah 66 verse 8, when Israel became a nation in how many, how long did it take? One day. One vote in the UN, the United Nations, and Israel was a nation. After almost 2,000 years of being scattered among the nations. You know, this whole thing about Israel being scattered, people thought God can't possibly bring them back. 
there's no hope for these people. There is no hope. But God did. And so that's why I'm saying it's a blessing living now because we can see that God did keep his promise. A lot of the old theologians, even the 3rd and 4th centuries, right up to the 19th century, it hadn't happened yet. And they're going, ah, it must be allegorical. God can't keep his promise. It's impossible. And so they interpreted the Bible differently. But now we can have confidence that we can interpret the Bible, and especially prophecy, literally, because everything that God said would happen has happened, you see, even if it seemed impossible. Now, God has restored, according to Ezekiel 36 and 37, God has physically restored the nation of Israel, but their spiritual restoration is still future. And that's going to happen during the tribulation. By the end of the tribulation, they will have turned back to God, but they haven't yet. Ezekiel 36.24 it says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. So notice here it says, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. So this is happening now. Every year, thousands more Jews find their way back to Israel. So year after year, thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews are continuing to come back to Israel. This prophecy is being fulfilled before our very eyes. Another prophecy that's being fulfilled before our very eyes, Ezekiel 36, 34 and 35. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. They will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Now, we've been to Israel twice now, by the grace of God, he allowed us to do that. So, beginning around 1948, and probably a bit before, the Israelis began to transform the land from scorching deserts and disease-ridden swamps. So, a lot of the people over there, the early settlers, they died because of the mosquitoes and the disease you know, malaria and things like that from these swamps. So they drained the swamps and they planted trees and guess what? This prophecy has come true. The land shall be tilled. The land has been transformed in the last, let's say, 70 years roundabout from scorching deserts and disease-ridden swamps to fertile fields, vineyards, orchards, forests, and it has become one of the largest exporters of fruit, flowers and vegetables to Europe. And it's also true that the cities have been rebuilt and they are most definitely fortified and inhabited. <laughs> Israel has one of the most technologically advanced militaries in the world. So I hope you can see that what God said he would do, he does do. God keeps his promises. He said he would bring them back into the land twice and he has. Again, remember, when Isaiah said that, they hadn't even come back the first time yet. They hadn't left the land the first time. And he is saying they're going to come back twice. That's God's foresight. That's God's foreknowledge of what's going to happen. He said that he was going to make the land fertile, and he has. He said the land would be fortified, and it has. God said he would bring back his people from all over the world, and they are. God said that he would change their hearts, and soon he will. Soon he will. This is one of the purposes of the tribulation. So, why have I done this? I want to show you that God's promises to Israel are unconditional. They have done nothing in their history to deserve being the children of Israel, God's chosen people. 
It's not because of anything they have done to deserve it, but only because of God's grace. So God says this in Jeremiah 31, 35-37. It is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day, and the moon and stars to light the night, and who stirs the sea into roaring waves. His name is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. And this is what he says. I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. <laughs> and he said he won't do that, so he's not going to reject his people, you see. This is what the Lord says. Just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider casting them, Israel, away. For all the evil they have done, I, the Lord, have spoken. So God knew what people were going to say. You know, when Israel was scattered after the Romans defeated them, the early church fathers said, ah, it's allegorical, this promise of the second return of the Israelites to Israel. The nation's dead. They rejected the Messiah. God's judged them. It's finished. No. It says here, So I will not consider casting Israel away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. So that's God's promise. And they did suffer a lot. The discipline, imagine that, 2,000 years of being out of your land because you rejected the Messiah, but still not forsaken. So why am I saying all this? Well, it's grace. The main point is that no one deserves to receive anything from the Lord. But because God is kind and merciful, loving and generous, he gifts us with his blessings. We don't deserve his blessings. They are all gifts. He blessed the nation of Israel only because he promised to. And because of this, there was nothing that they could do that was so bad that God would eventually say, You've gone too far. I can't forgive you anymore. Too bad, so sad. You are no longer my people. He will never come to say that. The point here is that because God has chosen them as his people, they will always be his people, no matter how much they rebel. Even if they reject the Messiah, God promises that one day they will accept him. So, the application. For us as children of God, we can take comfort. God's promises are unconditional. Many of God's promises are unconditional. Some of the unconditional promises that we have, the adoption into God's family, eternal life, sharing God's glory, us being justified like being made right in God's sight, innocent, forgiven of all our sins. Sanctification, the process of being changed from being sinful to being perfect. And our glorification, our getting our new body to live in heaven with and on the new earth. So once we receive these promises, they are ours to keep. Because they were never earned, we can never lose them. Do you like that? Because these promises were never earned, we didn't get them because we did something good to earn them. We can never lose them. It's a gift. And uh, both for Israel and the church, many of the promises, as I said, are unconditional, meaning that they have everything to do with God keeping his part of the bargain, but there's nothing for us to do. We just receive. And God has taken on all the responsibility to do what he promised to do. And it's all grace. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Who started the work? God did. 
Who's going to finish the work? It's God. So let's finish with Ephesians 2, 1 to 9. This is the application of grace for us in the church. Israel looked dead and buried. They looked like they were down and out. But God is bringing them back to life. So too with us. Ephesians 2, 1 to 9. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. It doesn't sound very good now, does it? Okay. Verse 4, the most important word in this passage is but. <laughs> so the situation is hopeless, but God says, but. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Verse 7, So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. So, stopping there for a sec, we just look back at the nation of Israel and seen the incredible wealth of God's grace and kindness towards Israel. They've done nothing to deserve God bringing them back into the land twice and making them a strong military and a strong economy and all these things. Nothing. They haven't even repented yet. It's grace. It's beautiful. So God can point to us, and the same is true for our lives too. God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. So again, the main point for this section is, just as God has been faithful to Israel, so he'll be faithful to us, his church. One day soon, what are we waiting for? The rapture. He's going to take us up, yeah, to be with himself, that we may be with him forever. And save us and spare us from the wrath to come during the tribulation. So we need to keep our hearts with all diligence, keeping them soft. Think about what God had to do with Israel. They didn't keep their hearts. They didn't keep their hearts soft and they had to be smashed, figuratively speaking. God had to smash their pride and they will suffer in the tribulation greatly. There's more coming for them. As God says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But if we respond to his discipline, we don't have to be disciplined as much and we can enjoy a deeper relationship with him. So, recap from the first part. What's the main point? If God calls us, he will provide the strength and the desire and everything we need to fulfill that ministry that he's given us. And we just learned about how gracious God is and that everything he does and this picture of Israel 
is a picture of God's grace where he keeps blessing them despite them continuing to reject him. And the other one was God's discipline. Why does God discipline us? And that is because he's bringing us back to himself. So meditate on those things. Father, thank you for, Lord, the nation of Israel. Lord, you're stepping back and you're seeing this big picture of how you discipline them. It's the same principle, you discipline us. They rebel, we rebel. They get disciplined, we get disciplined. Why? Because you are changing us to be more like you. You are stopping us from sliding off into sin where we're going to hurt ourselves, hurt other people, and damage our relationship with you. Instead, you discipline us, you bring us back to you, and we can enjoy a beautiful relationship with you. So Father, help us to look at the nation of Israel, and as we go through, we can learn about your grace. Lord, we're going to see some beautiful promises at the end there. And even on the way through, in the midst of this judgment, there's mercy. And I thank you that, Lord, we have hard hearts sometimes. We have things we struggle with. We have issues where we don't want to give things up sometimes. But, Lord, we can rest confidently that your promises are unconditional. Your love is unwavering. And because we didn't earn your blessings, they cannot be taken away from us. So help us just to come back to you not feeling condemned, not feeling like you've forgotten about us and you don't care about us anymore. No, you've made a decision to bless us and you will continue to bless us no matter what. It's not because of what we have done, but because of your grace. Help us to understand more of your grace this week in Jesus' name. Amen.